This is God's inspired, infallible, inerrant, God-breathed word. In Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, this is what Mark pens. And he, Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. And he leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed, he sent one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. There are three points on your outline this morning. We'll get there just shortly. Just to let you know on the front end, uh, we'll be heavy on the front. Point number one will be the longest, the most content there. Point number two and three will be shorter in nature. But before we get there, uh, let me draw your attention to, chat, or to verse rather one. Chapter 12, verse 1. Mark writes, and he, that is Jesus, began to speak to them. The them here is the religious rulers. That's the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders back from chapter 11. He began to speak to them in parables. Now, by this time... Most of us, if, if not all of us, are, are very familiar with what a parable is. A parable is a story or an illustration that is meant to communicate a specific spiritual truth. It's a story or an illustration that is meant to communicate a very specific spiritual truth. And it's interesting to know that most of Jesus' parables were meant for the purpose of concealing truth from those who had rejected it. Just eight chapters ago, back in Mark chapter 4, uh, Jesus said, speaking to his disciples, you don't need to turn there, just give me your ears. Jesus said, speaking to his disciples, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. Why? Well, Jesus tells us. So that they may indeed see, but not perceive. And they may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. You see, the reason that Jesus spoke in parables was to reveal truth to the hungry, but to conceal it from the haughty. Jesus spoke in parables to reveal truth to the, the humble and the hungry, but to conceal truth from the proud, the arrogant, the haughty. 
But this particular parable, the parable in front of us this morning, is very unique. It's very unique. It's unique in that instead of concealing truth from the proud, instead of concealing truth from the arrogant, instead of concealing truth from the haughty, Jesus actually uses this parable to reveal truth to those who had previously rejected it. Look back at the text. Jesus begins his parable saying, A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and he built a tower and then he leased it to tenants who went, I'm sorry, and went into another country. Now, let me press pause right there for just a second. Jesus is using very familiar imagery to his audience. Okay? The imagery that Jesus is using here is m- much less familiar to us thousands of years after the cross, after Jesus' ministry here on earth, but Jesus was using very, very familiar imagery to his audience. In Jesus' day, the hillsides of Palestine were covered with vineyards. I mean, you, you couldn't look in any single direction and not see a vineyard. If you look to the north, you'd see a vineyard. If you look to the east, you'd see a vineyard. South, west, you'd see a vineyard. Everywhere you looked, you would have seen a vineyard. They served as a mainstay of the economy. But more than that, throughout the Old Testament... Israel as a nation, God's chosen people, Israel as a nation, were referred to as a vineyard. As a matter of fact, they were referred to as the vineyard of God. You might remember I I, I mentioned that briefly. It wasn't the main point of the text back when we talked about Jesus cursing the fig tree because Israel was also referred to as as, uh, a fig tree or figs, the, the fruit of the vine or a vineyard. It was all imagery that was used to speak of the nation of Israel. Keep your finger there for just a moment in Mark chapter 12, but turn back to the Old Testament for just a second. I I want you to see this. Turn to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5. I want to draw your attention specifically to the first seven verses. Isaiah chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Read there with me. Let me sing for my beloved. My love song concerning his vineyard. Here you see the love, God's love for his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. And he dug it and cleared it of all the stones and he planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded only wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and she shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and she shall be trampled. I will make it a waste, and it shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain not upon it. 
For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Turn back over to Matthew chapter, or Mark chapter 12, rather. You see, in Isaiah's prophecy here in Isaiah chapter 5, God is angered. God is very upset because the vineyard that he so carefully planted and cultivated did not produce any useful fruit. The vineyard only produced wild grapes. Matter of fact, the, the Hebrew there, wild grapes, literally means stinking things or worthless things. And so what did God do? Because the vineyard that he loved, because the vineyard that he had so carefully and faithfully cultivated did not produce useful fruit, but instead only produced wild grapes, literally stinking things, what did God do? Well, Isaiah tells us that God removed its hedge, tore down its wall, no longer pruned it, allowed, allowed briars and thorns to grow up in it, and he withheld the rain. You see, Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, is a picture of God's judgment for Israel, her judgment on Israel for her unfaithfulness. But in Jesus' parable, though much of the same imagery is used, the focus of judgment is distinctly different. The focus of judgment in Isaiah was the nation of Israel. The focus of God's judgment here in Mark chapter 12 is specifically upon the leaders. Specifically upon Israel's leaders. Who were entrusted with the task of caring for the vineyard, but yet they were unfaithful. Jesus' parable serves as a searing condemnation of the very religious leaders that stood before him in the temple and asked him the question, by what authority do you do these things? By what authority do you do these things? There's three things that I want us to glean from Jesus' parable this morning. Number one, if you're taking notes, would encourage you to do so is this. God is kind. God is kind. He is persistent and he is patient. Even even to those who reject his servants. God is kind, he is persistent, and he is patient, even to those who reject his servants. Look back at your Bible there. Look at verse 2 through verse 8. When the season came, he, that is the landowner, sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit from the vineyard. And they took him, that is the servant, and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, the landowner sent them another servant. What did they do this time? They struck him on the head and they treated him shamefully. And so the landowner sent them another and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, surely they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him as well. Then we'll have the inheritance. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Well, the, the parable that Jesus is telling is reflective of a very common scenario in Palestine. He said, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press, built a tower and leased it to tenants. And then the landowner went into another country. You see, absentee landlords were very prevalent in Jesus' day. 
It wasn't uncommon for a landowner to lease or to rent his land to a tenant farmer, making an agreement with that tenant farmer to pay a certain percentage of the proceeds from that field to him as rent. The rest would belong to the, uh, to, to the owner. Okay? And here you have a landowner who, who would hire a tenant farmer to take care of, to cultivate the land, specifically here, a vineyard. Look at verse 2. When the season came, that is, when the harvest time had arrived, the owner of the field sent a servant to the tenants to collect the fruit from the vineyard that he was due. He was rightfully due here. But verse 3 tells us that instead, instead of giving the, the servant the owner's rightful portion of the fruit, the tenants beat the servant and sent him away empty-handed. Well, because the first attempt was unsuccessful, the landowner sent another servant to the tenant farmers. Verse 4 tells us that that servant was struck on the head, that's probably stoned, struck on the head and treated shamefully. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 tells us that the owner sent a third servant to the tenant farmers and he was killed. And so some, uh, so were many others. Some were beat, some were killed. Notice the progression of violence here toward the owner's servants. The tenants beat the first servant, stoned the second, and killed the third. What's, what's going on here? What, what's the imagery? What does all this point to? Well, in the Old Testament, the prophets, the prophets of God, those, those who stood before God's people, the nation of Israel, and proclaimed or declared, thus says the Lord, those prophets were oftentimes referred to as the servants of God. And these prophets, these Old Testament prophets, were oftentimes mistreated. We see Elijah was driven into the wilderness by the monarchy in 1 Kings 19. According to tradition, Isaiah was sawn into pieces. Zechariah was stoned to death near the altar in 2 Chronicles chapter 24. John the Baptist, we see him appear again in the text in Mark chapter 11 in question. John the Baptist was beheaded. Matter of fact, the writer of, of Hebrews described the prophets by saying they were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in the skins of sheep and goats, destitute and afflicted and mistreated, of whom the world was not even worthy. They went wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and in the caves of the earth. But despite the unfaithful tenants' progressive violence toward the servants and rebellion toward the owner, the owner patiently perseveres in his efforts to get the tenants to honor the terms of their agreement. You see what's taking place here in the text? You see, instead of sending another hired servant, now the owner would send his beloved son. Look at verse 6. Jesus says, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he, the landowner, sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. Now, let me just ask you a question here. What, what landowner in his right mind, knowing how the hired tenants of the field had treated the servants that were previously sent to them, 
would surrender his very son to the same murderous men. What landowner would do such a thing? It, it defies our ability to even understand. It does not make sense. Why would you do such a thing? Do you think they're going to treat your son any differently than they treated the first three servants that you sent? What landowner would do such a thing? It defies human logic. What would compel you to send your beloved son to the same wolves? Friends, love would. Love would compel you to send your son to the same wolves. A love that our finite minds struggle to comprehend. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. He sent his beloved son into it. The owner sending his beloved son reveals not only his kindness, not only his patience, but also his compassion. The landowner sending his son to the tenant farmers who had killed the previous servants showed his compassion. Showed his compassion. I think the meaning of the parable is clear. The owner of the vineyard is God. The owner of the vineyard is God. The vineyard is Israel. It's the nation of Israel. The servants were representative of the long line of faithful prophets that God sent to Israel. Who were the tenants? The tenants here are the religious leaders of Israel throughout her history and most recently the very Sanhedrin, that's the, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders that were standing before Jesus in the temple court. And of course, the beloved son is Jesus himself. It's Jesus himself. One can't help but wonder if the religious rulers surrounding Jesus, as he, as he begins to uh, speak about the owner's beloved son, uh, I, 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 just, I, I wonder if those religious leaders, if their minds go back to Jesus' baptism, which it's possible some of these religious leaders were standing around uh, at that event, when they heard God speak audibly from heaven concerning his son, this is my son, in whom I love, and in him I'm well pleased. This is my son. Are they making the connection that the very man standing before him, before them, is the beloved son in the parable? I can't help but wonder. Jesus Christ is the last and the preeminent messenger that God sent. I was thinking this week in my study specifically about uh, the phrase, surely they will respect my son. And I want to maybe squeeze that just a little bit and, and see if some good juice doesn't come out. And I want to ask the question here, how, how can we respect the Son? How can we show honor and respect that the Lord Jesus Christ is due? And let me give you just a few thoughts here. I would submit to you that you can respect his work by turning to him in faith and repentance. You can respect the, the work of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross by, by turning to him in faith and repentance. You can respect his word 
And you can respect his authority by your obedience. Remember, Jesus said, this is the one who loves me. He who what? Obeys my word. Obeys my word. You can't say, I, I love Jesus. I have great love for him. I have great admiration for him. I have great respect for him, but yet I don't obey his word. You can't say that. Are we obedient? Are we respecting him, honoring him, giving to him the, the, the honor and the glory that his great name is due by respecting his authority in obedience? You can respect his worthiness by your worship. You can respect his worthiness by your worship. You'll, you'll notice, if, if you haven't already, that what we do here on Sunday mornings, this is not a play, this is not a drama, this is not a show, this is not a performance, there's no fog machines up here, there's no laser light show in here. Why? Because we're not worshiping you. We come to worship him, the one who is worthy. And so we want all that we do, from the time that we open our corporate worship to the time that we, that we conclude in benediction, to help point your eyes and your mind and your heart upon the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. You can respect His worthiness by your unfettered, unhindered worship of Him. Worship isn't something that's confined to one hour on Sunday morning and the 167 other hours of the week are, are, are different. No, we worship Him at all times. John Piper, I've mentioned this before, uh, you can find this online, has written a very uh, helpful, stirring, challenging, encouraging, very brief article entitled, Drinking Orange Juice to the Glory of God. I would encourage you, uh, Google it this week, find it, and, and read a copy. Maybe you use that as a, as a part of your devotional time, or you, you read that as a part of your devotional time in God's Word. Drinking orange juice to the glory of God, even in the simple, seemingly mundane things. You do it to the glory of God. You wake up in the morning to the glory of God. As you're making your breakfast, you make your breakfast to the glory of God. You get ready in the morning to the glory of God. You go to your workplace to the glory of God. You work hard to the glory of God. You share your faith with your coworkers and your neighbors and your loved ones to the glory of God. You parent your children to the glory of God. You respect and love and honor your spouse to the glory of God. You think high thoughts of God to the glory of God. You come home to the glory of God. You cook dinner to the glory of God. You wind down to the glory of God. You spend time in God's word to the glory of God. You lay your head on your pillow to the glory of God. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all things for the glory of God. I would submit to you that you can respect his worthiness by your witness. By your witness. Not just by how you live your life. Yes, we ought to live lives that, that, uh, that are a reflection, albeit imperfect. Yes, we're sinful. But you ought to live a life that's a, that is a, a growing reflection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the, the witness with your words. The witness with your words. Are you, are you proclaiming the gospel? Are you declaring the gospel? Are you loving other people by sharing the gospel with them? Here's a challenging, sobering reality. You don't love people, and neither do I. 
if you are not sharing the gospel with them. And lastly, I would submit to you that you can respect him by imitating him. You can respect him by becoming more like him. You can respect him and honor him uh, by committing to growing in the Christian life. Moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, year by year. How do the tenants respond? Back to our text here. How do the tenants respond to the owner sending his beloved son? Well, they certainly don't receive him. They certainly don't respect him. They certainly don't admire him. They certainly don't see him as being worthy. They reject the owner's son. And in doing so, they reject the owner's authority and compassion. Look at verses 7 and 8. Jesus says, But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. The fact that the owner's son was coming likely caused the tenants to assume that the owner was either too far away to act or that he was no longer living. You catch that? The fact that the owner's son was coming probably caused the tenant farmers to think one of two things. Either the owner himself was too far away to act, he was too distant to do anything about it, or maybe he's already died, and so his son is coming. You see, under specific circumstances, an inheritance could be regarded as an ownerless property which could legally be claimed by anyone and if the property wasn't claimed within a specified period of time the law provided that a tenant could assume possession and ownership of the property now help you think a little bit more uh, understand a little more what they're thinking oh the son's coming we'll just kill him why because once he's gone we have rights to the property we have rights to the property The religious leader's plan here is so devious. The tenants wanted all the fruit of the vineyard for themselves. In other words, they wanted all the position, all the power, all the prestige, and all, all the monetary profits from the vineyard. What were they really seeking? Think about that for a moment. What were they really seeking? Let me submit to you that they were seeking to be God. They were seeking to be God. Such is sinful humanity. We think that if we can do away with God, then we can rule the vineyard. If, if, we, if we can just cut God out, if we can just scrub him. We've done that, right? We've done it in our schools, we've done it in our government. Sadly, many of our churches have done that. If you can call in a church... I mean, we have sought to disinfect the world of God, to cut him out, to scrub him away. Why? Because we want to rule our own vineyard. We want to be in charge. We want to be God. And so we try to cleanse our little kingdoms of God so that we can be the gods of our own little kingdoms. Take in for a moment whose breath it is that's speaking this parable. Just consider for a moment. 
whose breath it is that's speaking this parable? It's the Lord Jesus himself. How unshrinkingly does the meek yet mighty Jesus disclose to his enemies his perfect knowledge of their murderous plan? Consider that for a moment. Jesus knows it all, and yet he won't lift a finger to prevent it. Consider that. What resolute humility. Paul reminds us in Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in this. While we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were fast bound in sin, Christ died for us. When God sent his son, he sent his all. Jesus was God's ultimatum. In other words, if Jesus Christ is refused, nothing else remains. Jesus is God's ultimatum to the world. You respect, you honor, you admire, you you glorify, you repent and believe and submit and follow. You give your very life for him or you lose everything. That is the ultimatum. Jesus is God's line drawn in the sand to humility. And it's a line of love. On what side of the line do you stand? On what side of the line do you stand? In the face of humanity's refusal to receive God's love, God persisted and persisted and persisted. We see that clearly in Jesus' parable, What a gracious, kind, merciful, benevolent, long-suffering God we have. Charles Spurgeon once penned these words, glorious words. If you reject him speaking about Jesus, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out with cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem. If you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. Jesus is love made manifest. He is the line drawn in the sand. The glory of the gospel is that God is persistent, that God is long-suffering, that God is passionately uh, compassionate. You might even say relentless. Even when his son is mocked and rejected and murdered, yet he still comes, the son still comes. Jesus persists in reaching out to a person until death. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ by grace alone, through faith alone... He persists. He persists in coming to you. But he bids you die. Repent, believe, and die. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but he lives in me. Not the life I now live. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You must die. And if you have not, then you know him not. Jesus persists in reaching out to you. Are you united to Jesus by faith and repentance? Have you come to a place where instead of rejecting the Son, you have rejected your sin and embraced the Son? God is kind, he's patient, he's persistent, even to those who reject his servants. Number two, God's kindness will one day turn to justice. God's kindness will one day turn to justice for those who reject his servants. 
You might want to put in parentheses there, I intended its meaning here, but you might put his son. For those who reject his servants, the prophets of old, but those who specifically reject his son. His son. Look at verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Remember, the, the, the tenant farmers are thinking, well, the whole reason that the son is coming is because the, is because the landowner is probably likely dead or he's just too far away to do anything about it. And Jesus tells us, no, that's certainly not the case. He will come. And he will destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. In light of the rejection of the owner's servants by the tenants, what will God do? Well, he will respond. What action will he take? Well, Jesus' words are as clear as they are devastating. He says he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyards to others. You see, men might take advantage of or presume upon God's kindness for a time, but judgment and justice will come. Friends, God may and often does bear long. He's patient, he's long-suffering. God does, he often does, bear long with disobedience and rebellion. But let me tell you clearly, let me tell you unashamedly, let me tell you uh, with, a, with a heart that breaks for the lost, he will soon act. He bears long, but in the end, he will act. He will act. In the existence of his common grace, which God has common grace upon the whole world, right? I mean, he, he, the, the, the sun rises and the rain falls both on the righteous and the what? The unrighteous. God's common grace. And we don't deserve anything. Lost people are even afforded uh, God's kindness and his benevolence and his, and his goodness. I mean, the fact that food tastes good. Uh, the fact that you have a family who... Who loves you? The fact that you have a, a, a means, a job that supports like oh, We don't deserve any of that. It's all common grace. The, the, the fact that your heart still breathes. The fact that he, he lets you use his oxygen. That you might respirate and that your body might continue to live. Don't presume upon any of that. Don't presume upon God's grace. God displays great patience and forbearance in the world, but don't ever mistake God's patience uh, with tolerance for sin. Catch that? Don't ever mistake God's patience for the fact that he tolerates sin. In Romans chapter 2, Paul asks this question. He said, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? All of God's common grace is meant to lead a lost and dying world to faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul goes on and he says, but because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There's a reckoning day, my friends. A reckoning day when Jesus will step back into the world and he will judge again. And he will sit on a great white throne. And he will judge in righteousness. God's justice is inflexible. It's inflexible. Who are the others in verse 9? Who are the others in verse 9? What will the owner do? What will God do? Well, he'll come and destroy the tenants and he'll give the vineyard to others. 
Well, the others here are the Gentiles. This parable contains the germ of Gentile inclusion. You see, as a result of the Jews' rejection of Christ, their privileges and their responsibilities would be passed on to the Gentiles. Matter of fact, that's where we're at right now, right? God has temporarily hardened the heart, uh, the, the hearts of, of Israel so that the, the full measure, the full number of the Gentiles may come in, and then God is going to, again, turn his attention to Israel. God has a plan for Israel. God has not scrapped Israel. There was a, a unilateral covenant made back in Genesis concerning Israel. And that covenant will be upheld. But right now, uh, their hearts are hard. And, and the Gentiles, just meaning non-Jews, now have or possess the ability to, uh, to relish in the same grace of God, the same mercy of God, the same forgiveness of God by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Uh, Gentiles are the others, of which most of us probably are here this morning to the praise of God. Number three, let's land the plane here. The ultimate servant, God's beloved son, is triumphant to save. The ultimate servant... God's beloved son is triumphant to save. Look at verses 10 through 12. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. They were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Have you not read the scripture, Jesus asks, You see, the religious leaders were supposed to be steeped in the scriptures. They were supposed to be teachers, but unfortunately they were blind guides. And so Jesus says here, he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. God's doing all this. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. You see, for centuries, Israel had been the stone with which the rest of the world had rejected as insignificant and despised. But in God's sovereign plan, Israel was chosen to be the cornerstone in the redemptive history of the world, in God's redemptive plan for the world. Through the nation of Israel, salvation would come. But the figure has an even greater significance than that. Peter declared in Jerusalem before the religious rulers shortly after Pentecost, saying this, He said, let it be known to all of you and to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. He has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. This Jesus is the cornerstone. The stone that the builders rejected, the stone that Israel's leaders had had rejected, has become the cornerstone. You see, the greater stone than Israel is Jesus Christ. He was despised and rejected by the architects of the Jewish religious system, the very Sanhedrin that stood before Jesus. But despite this rejection, God would highly exalt Jesus to be the cornerstone. In a marvelous display of power, God turned the apparent defeat of his final messenger, his beloved son, into triumph. You think you've defeated him. You think you've crushed him. You think he's left for dead. 
I will triumphantly raise him from the dead, and he will be seated at my right hand forevermore. After the rejection, after the crucifixion, came glory. Notice the text says, this was the Lord's doing, or this was the Lord's will. God is acting here. He's not responding. Friends, our God acts. He does not respond. He's an acting God. God's marvelous redemptive plan is right on schedule just as he planned. Look at verse 12. How did the religious leaders respond to Jesus' parable? Well, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders again desired to arrest him, but they were fearful, just as they were fearful to answer his question last chapter, the question, by what authority do you do these things? They were fearful, so they said, we don't know. We don't know. Again here, they're fearful of the people, for they perceive that he, Jesus, had told the parable against them. You know that feeling when someone is talking, and you think to yourself, is he or she talking about me? You ever been there? You hear somebody talking, and they're like, this sounds oddly familiar. I think they might be talking about me. It's exactly what's taking place here in the text. That's how these guys felt as Jesus was telling this parable, and they were exactly right. And so what did they do? They tucked tail, and they went away. But it won't be long until they appear again to try and trap him. And so, friends, let me ask you this morning in closing, what about you? What about you? Are you rejecting the Son, or are you respecting the Son? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, such challenging truth here, such glorious truth about you, the, the landowner, your, your covenant, faithful love for your vineyard. God, we thank you that you love us even despite our sin, and you demonstrated that by sending your son for us. Now, Father, I pray that each person here would be uh, challenged by your word. I pray that we would be pruned, that we, uh, your vineyard, those who know Jesus savingly, would bear more resemblance to him, that that we would be fruitful for you, that we would be pleasing to you. Help us to grow, help us to change, help us to long for, uh, for your word. Uh, Lord, help us to hate our sin. Help us to wake up every morning and to put off the old man and to put on the new man that was created after the likeness of our maker. Lord, we want to please you, to honor you, and to glorify you. Lord, we pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know you this morning, that you would draw them to yourself. Bring them to a place of repentance and faith. Uh, Lord, Redeem them, we pray. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.